Welcome to DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks alongside Dave Corbin. Glad to have you with us as we explore the ideas behind today's headlines. Thanksgiving, Dave. Same to you, Matt. It's always that time of year, right, where you know that you're near the finish line for the fall semester. It is uh, hard to believe, yeah. The craziest of uh, semesters uh, in my teaching career. To say the least. Yeah, we've got a lot to talk about today. We're going to try to do a little bit of recap of the politics of the last couple of weeks. And then we've got to focus on a Thanksgiving-related theme. We're going to talk a lot about gratitude. So let's get right to the headlines. The two big stories in the last week. First, the election endgame. And so the transition has officially begun. And Joe Biden has announced foreign policy team that he plans to put out there. And you, know, you read through the names, and some are more familiar than others, including John Kerry, International Climate Envoy, but longtime advisors, a lot of people who have deep roots in the Obama administration or people that would have been part of a Hillary Clinton administration had the 2016 election gone the other way. Looks like a return of the establishment, Dave. Definitely. I, and I think that it's interesting that uh, he began his cabinet picks by announcing his foreign policy team. Uh, that tells you, I think, where his comfort zone is and where there seems to be a lot of unanimity uh, among uh, those who are center-left uh, progressives. This uh, movement back to uh, multilateralism, uh, an embrace of uh, multiculturalism, and uh, the hope that uh, Democrats can uh, return to the uh, Clinton-Obama years. And um, it certainly marks a, a, a great difference between uh, what's taken place the last four years in which the Trump administration really moved in, a, in uh, by and large, a very different direction than both the Republican and Democratic establishment. A lot of that was labeled as an America first uh, policy. But I think in its, um, in its best accounting, uh, that policy uh, suggested that unilateralism works. Uh, that when the United States um, acts uh, independently in, in world affairs, uh, which means it's free to act as, as it sees fit for its interests, it doesn't isolate itself, but it, it usually can make better decisions uh, for the long term for the country, whether that's um, in trade uh, or treaties or, or what have you. And um, so that, that seems to be, uh, for now, at least a, a place to side, and we'll have a return to uh, the older establishment of foreign policy routine. Yeah, all kinds of stories this week. America is back. Uh, Europeans uh, recognizing America is going to get involved in climate treaty discussions again and all those old ways. And, and so there's definitely this, this sense that that was one place where President Trump had real success, had real success on his own terms, at least, in repudiating that establishment, moving away from that, and really putting in place something different. And like you said, I think it's, it's telling that that's where Biden wants to begin, because it's probably the place where the president's mark was most clearly made on the overall trajectory of American affairs. Some of the other areas that he talked a lot about, you think about some of the domestic issues, infrastructure, or what do you want to do with immigration or the wall, really not much to show for. Uh, the rhetoric in terms of actual policies and things that were accomplished. And so in that sense, maybe not much to be undone from the standpoint of a Biden administration coming in. But foreign policy is one place where the differences mattered. And uh, whether wisely or unwisely, there were a lot of shifts in America's relations with her allies and treaty organizations under the Trump administration. And it seems like Biden wants to very, very quickly return, as you said, to that pre-2016 posture. Yeah, and the list of uh, individuals, uh, Anthony Blinken, um, Jake Sullivan, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, these are all individuals who um, have held positions in previous administrations. So it really is kind of a who's who of the uh, Clinton-Obama uh, line. Um, probably even go back to Madeleine Albright there. Uh, and uh, these individuals are really kind of a, a mix of two different types of, of people, um, uh, what you might call liberal internationalists, those who believe that um, institutions ought to be first and foremost in creating what they would call an international order. Uh, and then uh, secondly, uh, this, this notion uh, that somehow uh, we can um, we can act as kind of a check on the international uh, system. 
uh, that we can kind of practice a, a Kissinger-esque realpolitik. Uh, one of the things that is um, less known about the foreign policy establishment is it seems to have both a strong Wilsonian, Woodrow Wilson element, and Henry Kissinger element. Uh, and you, you combine those two together, uh, and you certainly see a lot of that in the in the resumes of, of the folks uh, who have been selected by Biden. Um, I'm sure we'll have an opportunity, hopefully in the next um, month or two months, to have a foreign policy specific podcast. We haven't had one since I think our second show uh, when we were talking about U.S. and China relations, but I think we'll we'll have an opportunity to return to that and kind of uh, carve out kind of what are the various ways that we can look at America's role in the world. Yeah, and think about maybe the final legacy of the Trump administration. Some things can be rolled back pretty quickly and others are more permanent. You think about his success in recent months with Middle East agreements and the change in relations between a number of the, the major states there and Israel, and we'll see how that affects the Biden plans moving forward. Uh, the second major story, of course, on the election endgame front was the fact that the challenges, uh, the various lawsuits in particular that have been filed, uh, more or less ended with a fizzle. So two weeks ago, we were talking about the idea of having recounts in the three states that were closest, Wisconsin, Georgia, and Arizona. And of course, a hand recount did proceed in Georgia that confirmed at that point a win for Biden, although a little bit narrower because they found about 5,000 votes that hadn't been counted. And those votes were to some degree in, in Trump's direction. And so now because the election after the hand count is still close, they're doing a, a second recount in Georgia and we'll see what results are there, but don't really expect that that will alter the ultimate outcome. Uh, We've got a recount going on in Wisconsin in two major Democratic counties that was paid for by the Trump campaign because the election wasn't close enough to trigger an automatic recount in the state. So they they paid $3 million, believe it or not, $3 million to do a recount in in these two counties not a huge fan myself of the targeted recount. It seems like you're, you're gaming it just a little bit. I understand if you're paying $3 million to recount two counties that you might want to limit the number of counties that you recount. But, but the idea that you, know, you want to look where you're probably most likely to have an advantage and then leave out the counties where you're not doesn't exactly get at the spirit of, of the recount overall. And then Arizona, there wasn't a recount. And they've recently certified the results in Maricopa County the largest county in the state, the one that seems to have the most influence on elections. Pennsylvania completed certification on Tuesday this week, Michigan on Monday. So, so basically, we're, we're coming to an end. And you know, Sidney Powell's still out there talking about Krakens and talking about major lawsuits. And, and guess what? The, the proof is coming. But it's been coming for too long, and there's been too little of it, to the point that even in this last week, Rush Limbaugh, expressed disappointment, carrying the water for the Trump administration's complaints about election integrity. And they keep saying, we're going to give you the proof, and the proof has never come. And Tucker Carlson, similar sentiments earlier in the week. Where's the proof, right? If, if, if this happened, then show us the evidence. And I guess the biggest story is the ongoing disconnect between what they claim in court when lawyers reputations and professional standing is on the line and what they claim in press conferences and on Twitter. And this is, I think, from the, from the beginning, there's really been two tracks to this, right? There's been the actual legal challenge and the legal challenges of various places, which have made relatively modest claims. And when they haven't made modest claims, they haven't gotten very far because they haven't had the evidence to sustain the more extravagant claims. And then you've got these wild charges conspiracy theories and all the rest that are flying around Twitter and news conferences and, and never any evidence to support those. And so you say, well, what's, what's going on here? It doesn't actually seem like an effort, in my view, to ensure election integrity. Uh, it seems much more like an effort to control a political narrative, to, to maintain a certain constituency's uh, personal affection for you, right? Being Donald Trump, if he's thinking about 2024, you want to have people that are convinced you were robbed last time that are ready to come out for you and you alone in four years time. Clear, clear the field. So you have a a shot and and now at redemption because last time you were robbed. It seems like a a political exercise rather than one aimed at 
election integrity. I, I, we ought to be pursuing election integrity. And if there's actual cases of fraud and, and if there's rules, as we've talked about, that encourage fraud, those should be attacked. And they should be attacked in a way that actually makes it likely that your lawsuit will succeed, that your reforms will be adopted. Uh, but rather than doing that, as has been so often the case, I think, in the Trump administration, you get into rhetorical overdrive and where you could have a consensus potentially in favor of doing some things to shore up election integrity, you make it a hyperpartisan issue and you burn your credibility on charges that are simply unfounded. Well, I think there's an opportunity there for Republicans who will remain in Washington to, to try to make, uh, put forward some of these reforms and to campaign on these reforms in 2022 and 2024. Uh, I don't know the likelihood that any of the reforms would be signed, but certainly there seems to be a, a great opportunity there uh, to create some some standards uh, to get up to date uh, with regard to mail-in balloting. Uh, we had warned four months ago, given the amount of numbers that would be there for mail-in ballots, that uh, certainly there'd be discrepancies. Uh, so, um, and I think now is a time for an accounting of uh, what didn't work in 2020, uh, what more than likely will happen in the future if, if we see more and more less or less and less in-person uh, balloting. So I think that's that, that's what I take out of it. Uh, it seems it seems though that President Trump is now moving forward. Uh, looks like we'll probably have no uh, issues in, in January with with the transition as has been kind of you know fear mongered by uh, some on the left. Yeah, interesting piece. Uh, that I'll mention just briefly here by Dan McLaughlin at National Review, the coup that wasn't. And, you know, we've, we've sort of been in this mode where because the way the president tweets and speaks, you don't really know his intentions. And yet so often his efforts are ineffectual so that, you know, you would think he might need a little bit of time into Tocqueville reading about self-interest rightly understood because he seems like he's not very good at measuring often his self-interest rightly understood. And so you end up in situations where his efforts seem ultimately ineffectual and, and make his cause less likely to succeed. We talked about the failures of the campaign at, at earlier stages and some of the ways that he shot himself in the foot over the course of his presidency. The, the coup that wasn't, right? For all, the, for all the debate, all the worry, all the hand-wringing, there's going to be a normal transition. Uh, it's only been a few weeks since the election. Now, I think it's fair to say there some some element of this, you know, people like really Giuliani and Sidney Powell and, and others have have really, really done a disservice to the country and to their cause. If their cause actually is the integrity of elections and President Trump himself and the way that he's promoted these conspiracy theories, it made it very difficult for people who have genuine concerns about these things to pursue real reforms. And the way the more you force an issue into a partisan lens, the more difficult you make it for people to embrace it, right? And, and we've seen this over the course of the Trump presidency. Anything that Trump's for, then automatically half the country is against. They don't have to think about it, right? They're, they're automatically against it because Trump is for it. And, and so you, you, list the, you miss the chance to shore up some of these weaknesses. The dog that didn't bark in the night in this election campaign, which we were warning about when we talked about election integrity, was all these ballots would be invalidated. Remember when they did the New York elections over the summer and a massive percentage of the ballots were invalidated because they didn't have signature correct or the date or whatever. And, and there was none of that. Right? You know, we, we, were, we were expecting to hear about people being disenfranchised and that would be the narrative. To count these ballots, there was none of that. Why was there none of that? You know, probably because a lot of ballots that were questionable were, were, were included, right? Because they didn't want to, have the claims of disenfranchisement. So, so there you, you, know, you overcompensated perhaps by allowing ballots that were of questionable integrity in order to count so that you didn't end up having this debate and judicial cases about people being disenfranchised. And so there's a perfect area, right, where there really should be some work done to make sure that you have a proper checking of signatures, that you have the right kind of timeline for receiving and processing these ballots. We really need that, especially if moving forward, like you said, we're going to have more of mail-in voting. But I fear that the way that these last few weeks have gone, 
it's made it that much more difficult for people to view this in a nonpartisan way and therefore promote election integrity in ways that, without knowing the outcome, could actually be good for the republic. I think he also missed uh, another opportunity, the, the Trump team, to shine a light on what happened in July of 2016 through January of 2017 uh, with uh, some of these attempts to undermine right from the beginning of the Trump administration. I think that had he been able to show uh, a different approach to a transition and then go back and talk about what happened in 2016, uh, that it really would have put him in much better stead uh, versus his political opponents who uh, went to um, outrageous and I think in many cases illegal um, ends to, to undermine his presidency. Second major story of the last week or so is the emergence of now three coronavirus vaccines. First, Pfizer announced their vaccine, and that seems to be the one that's the closest to being rolled out, maybe only just a few weeks away. And their initial report was 90% effective with relatively minor side effects. And then Moderna announced theirs was 94.5% effective. And then Pfizer came back and said, well, actually, it's 95. So, so we've got some healthy competition between Moderna and Pfizer for whose is most effective. Uh, there are some issues potentially with Pfizer's insofar as it requires very, very low temperatures to preserve it. But my guess is they'll be able to work that out. Moderna's also requires some pretty cool conditions in order to maintain the integrity of the vaccine, but, but really, really good news there. And they're talking about you know, tens of millions of doses that could be available even by the end of the year. And you think about all the difference that could make by healthcare workers, nursing home workers, obviously residents of nursing homes, right? That first wave of people that you would want to give the vaccines to, you know, what a, what a massive difference it could make if by the end of January or February, those high-risk populations are all vaccinated. And now, even though virus continues while people are inoculated further still over the next several months, the whole profile of it changes dramatically, right? If, if, if the high-risk populations are, are now vaccinated and not going to get it, then you're talking about a much less severe health crisis as you work your way through the rest of the population, say, through the spring into maybe early summer. The third uh, vaccine announced from AstraZeneca with Oxford University, a little bit lower effectiveness rate, although they, they measured it differently. They, they tested everybody every week, whereas Pfizer and Moderna only counted if you had a positive test, so they would have missed people that were asymptomatic. So it's, it's probably it's relatively comparable degrees of success. Uh, but the Oxford-produced vaccine is cheaper and also just requires no more refrigeration. So there's a lot of thought this is one that will, will go to the world uh, in places where you may not have as technologically advanced cooling conditions or things of that sort. There will be an opportunity to make uh, large numbers of doses that can be a, a blessing to, to people all, all around the globe. So we begin, it seems like, to see the end game coming into view on COVID-19 and this is the preferred end game rather than the herd immunity one, which would require, of course, many, many more people to be sick and probably many, many more people to die. Uh, but we begin to see the possibility of a return to something like normal life, perhaps late spring or early summer. And uh, Matthew Cottonetti at National Review wrote a, a piece I just want to mention briefly here where he cites a speech by Ronald Reagan in 1967 talking about the creative society. And you know, Reagan was responding to the rhetoric of Johnson's Great Society. So what's, what's the alternative to the Great Society? We've talked about the Great Society before, this, this vision for a government-centered realization of human aspirations. And, and Reagan laid out a vision for a creative society where, where we're kind of bottom up, right? people are doing things creatively, expressing their creativity, and how the government, if it, if it gets out of the way, and, and in some ways partners by reducing regulations. And of course, in the case of Operation Warp Speed with these vaccines supplying you know, guarantees, we will buy this many vaccine doses. So you know you have that purchase as you're investing money on the front end, obviously lots of investment of money at the beginning of these kind of projects. You don't know if you'll be successful, but the guarantee that the government would buy doses 
helps you to do that, to raise the capital in order to make that investment. But this is the kind of thing that is really a, an expression of that creativity that, that the American society at its best is known for. And that here we have a timeline that's really unprecedented to, you know, in the space of less than a year to establish a vaccine that seems like it's going to work, that the side effects are going to be manageable, that could end this global pandemic, a really remarkable achievement and something that we can be grateful as we think about gratitude, we can be grateful for the conditions out of which these kinds of innovative techniques emerge. Yeah, I think it speaks to just how special uh, a country and society that we live in, right? In World War II, in a time of necessity, um, you talked about the arsenal of democracy, uh, turning back um, tyrants in all parts of the globe. And here you see the arsenal of, of democracy, or perhaps the arsenal of free enterprise, the arsenal of innovation. Uh, and it's really an area where I think that, um, you know, if you ask someone um, center left, was there anything that, that, President Trump did that, that you liked, it would be one area where you'd probably give great thanksgiving to the Trump administration and its efforts this year uh, to put into place Operation Warp Speed. I think the, the idea from the beginning to, uh, to purchase uh, those doses early on, um, to help out those companies who may not have uh, the buying power um, of, of the larger companies, I think it's all working uh, uh, to, to our benefit. Um, I will say, however, I talked to a friend in the pharmaceutical industry, and I'm like, would you take the, um, the vaccine right away? He's like, well, I'd usually hold off about six months when something goes in the market before I take it. So it gave me a little pause as to <laughs> whether or not I want to be first in, in line uh, come January. Uh, but semi-kidding aside, I, I think that, yeah, those, those numbers um, speak to really kind of a miraculous response uh, uh, to this and, and something that we definitely can be thankful for. Uh, we, I think we all want to get back to normal really quickly. Yeah, and we can be thankful for those that actually did go first in line because each of these has been tested on 30,000 people who volunteered yeah. to, to take that when there was no knowledge of its efficacy or the side effects. And yeah. they were the ones that were willing to do that. So you're talking about 100,000 people right across those three studies that, that have done that. And, and now you know, we're four months on from the beginning of those round three, as they called it, studies. Uh, so... We at least have that longer period of time, and again, those those brave individuals that were willing to uh, take the risk of, yeah. of the vaccine, or or who got even got the uh, the placebo, and and maybe thought they were vaccinated and weren't, and and so took on a, a risk of their own. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, that's a, an important thing to remember. So uh, this this actually works out nicely as a transition to uh, my required reading uh, for uh, the week. Uh, of course, uh, the show will come out on Saturday, two days after uh, Thanksgiving. And uh, Thanksgiving is a unique um, American uh, holiday, not to say that other countries may not have their own uh, types of Thanksgiving, but uh, we are people who uh, have uh, been called really from the beginning of the settlement uh, of the new world. Uh, to give thanks. And um, who do we give thanks to? And, and why do we have gratitude? Uh, what do we have to be grateful for, I think would be a, a good theme for us to talk about in our required reading uh, for this week. So I want to um, turn to a, um, an essay written by uh, Robert Royal, uh, I Think, Therefore, I Thank. Uh, this came out in the American Mind uh, two years ago at Thanksgiving. And um, he begins his essay by saying, um, to think is to thank, is a saying used by figures as different as uh, G.K. Chesterton, uh, a cheery theist, and of all people, Martin Heidegger, a dark existentialist. And it goes on in the essay to, to talk about um, you know, why uh, both a dark existentialist uh, and a cheery theist uh, could be thankful. And he says something really interesting. In the middle of the essay, he, he talks about what gratitude is. Uh, and he says, properly speaking, you cannot thank a thing. You may feel some sort of happiness that you and the world have come into existence, but that is not exactly the same thing as gratitude. And then he says, gratitude proper is to persons, to someone who has done something good for us that they might not have. Uh, so for Royal, there's a, there's a, um, uh, gratitude takes on a personality. It takes on a relationship. Uh, we're, we're grateful, right, uh, to things that we relate to. 
And he'll suggest here that one of the neat expressions of, of gratitude that you see within Christianity is its opportunity that allows you to be grateful universally for a creator God, right, who has created the world and all things in it, but also to be grateful for thoughts, the deeds, the actions of particular people, uh, the, the particular created thing. Uh, so gratitude rightly understood is relational, uh, but secondly, um, it is both universal and particular uh, in, uh, in pointing to the whom you have to be grateful for. Yeah, I think that's, that's really important. Um, you know, I'm right of the fact that the Heidelberg Catechism, which is the, one of the great Reformed catechisms from the 16th century, is divided into three parts. And the first part is about sin and misery. The second part is deliverance, wherein the gospel is outlined and goes through the Apostles' Creed. But then the last part, which takes up almost 40% of the catechism, is entitled Gratitude. And the point is that you respond to God's grace with gratitude. As, as you're delivered from sin, from the misery and the danger of sin, then you naturally yield up praise, worship, thankfulness, all this together, gratitude to God for his mercy. And so it's, it's the thing that goes hand in hand with grace. As you receive grace, you respond with gratitude. And of course, you think about that in a theological sense. And as you think about gratitude in interpersonal relations, it's the same thing, right? When, when you have a gratuitous gift, a gratuitous a mercy that you've received from a person, it naturally engenders gratitude or it ought to draw gratitude out of us in that personal relationship. Yeah. So I, it's the second piece that I want to relate to this is uh, Wall Street Journal every Wednesday prior to Thanksgiving uh, publishes uh, uh, two op-eds. Um, the first is called The Desolate Wilderness uh, and the second is called The Fair Land. And uh, what what it's suggesting here in uh, turning to the, the diaries of those who first settled the new world is, you know, how do we get from a desolate wilderness to a fair land? That, that definitely takes a, a creator God who opened up the prospect uh, for this people, this group of 100, 150 um, individuals, to come across an ocean uh, that didn't have um, kind of TripAdvisor on the other side, uh, giving them <laughs> hints as to the best places to eat or, or um, stay, um, but then uh, to give them the energy and, and the fortitude uh, to make their way through those first harsh years uh, so that uh, over and over again, the fair land that is built uh, through uh, the, the efforts of mankind always revert back to a gratitude to God for giving those people that energy, to give it, for giving them that strength, that, that fortitude. And of course, you know, you know, we see that you know, throughout uh, our nation's history. Our, our nation's history is, is not a perfect history. It's not a history of perfect justice where everyone has made the right choice. Everyone has always been industrious. Everyone has always done uh, the right thing. But that which makes our nation unique is uh, the opportunity uh, and the hope that we have in that opportunity uh, to be able to learn from our mistakes, um, to, to move forward and to do the right thing and to be grateful for the opportunity itself. To, uh, we have hope um, because we, we've seen in our past uh, that opportunity arise over and over again, which is why it's so central, I think, to our a regime that we always maintain that sense uh, of hope. When you think about the American dream, right? What is the American dream? It's, it's a hope. And as we've seen in recent years, surveys where people say, yeah, I don't, I don't think that my children will do as well as I am. And there's been a lot of worry about that. And maybe that's a common thought in other places. But, but if the United States is not a place where people have hope and the expectation of better things and and not just material things, although uh, too often maybe that's how we think about it, but then, then that really cuts against that, that vision now. You know, we just had the 400th anniversary a few days ago of the landing at Plymouth. And so here we are in this Thanksgiving season. We often think about the pilgrims, but you know, the, the 400 years of opportunity that, that's embedded in the voyage of that small number of people across the North Atlantic and all the challenges that went along with that and all the hopes they had, which have become 
our hopes in some ways we've inherited that hope. Uh, maybe we've transformed it in some ways too, but, but we see the, the possibilities that they saw uh, realized to, a some, to some degree and yet more possibilities still that we reach out for and we hope to continue the legacy that they've established and, and of course the generations in between have carried forward as well. Yeah, and here part of the problem, right, is that kind of living in a, in a great age of prosperity, it's, it's sometimes harder to be grateful because it's just an expectation uh, that, of course, it has to be this way. Of course, there are going to be laws. Of course, there's, we're going to live in a land of plenty. And that, that wasn't, you know, always the case. So sometimes kind of the uh, material outflowing of prosperity that's occurred over those 400 years blinds us uh, from seeing the, the need to, to be grateful and, um, you know, and being so, uh, living so much in the immediate and, and wanting more and more and more, uh, we, we lose, um, you know, our proper grasp of, or, or, or measure of, of, of why, why gratitude is essential. So the, um, the second piece I want to uh, reference here is there are actually two essays, um, uh, by Yuval Levin and, um, uh, the second essay is with a, a co-author, and they, they deal with uh, the relationship between political conservatism uh, and uh, gratitude. Uh, Levin uh, says um, in, in the first piece, uh, to my mind, conservatism is gratitude. Conservatives tend to begin from gratitude for what is good and what works in our society and then strive to build on it, while liberals tend to begin from outrage at what is bad and broken and seek to uproot it. You need both because some of what is good about our world is irreplaceable and has to be guarded, while some of what is bad is unacceptable and has to be changed. Uh, we should never forget that the people who oppose our various endeavors and argue for another way are well-intentioned, too, even when they're wrong, and that they're not always wrong. So here, kind of an interesting thought by Levin in, in, in taking up this, um, this continuum of conservatism and progressivism, and and noting right that that which the conservative has in his corner is a rightful appreciation of tradition, of circumstance, uh, of of things granted or given uh, or built uh, by another in the past uh, that allows you allows you to move forward with proper respect as to who kind of allowed you to come into being uh, in in the first place but it's not a static conservatism it, it it's a conservatism that is thankful for the past but open right to an improvement uh, in the future that could lend itself worthy of the gratitude of others 50 100 150 years uh, down the road. And I think it's kind of a, it, I, I think it's a well-measured um, uh, crafting of, of what political gratitude amounts to, and I think applies nicely uh, in the case of the United States. Yeah, I think it's a point you've been making really several of our last podcasts where you've, you've talked about the idea of a patriotism that's built upon love, but that a love is a foundation that allows for a right criticism. If you begin with love, then you, you give the benefit of the doubt. You give the judgment of charity. You inherit a tradition. You recognize that the blessings you've received from that tradition are ones that didn't have to be. One of the things that we learn from the study of history is that there are other paths, and there are other paths that lead in directions that are not as blessed as the direction that the United States has gone. So to see that that tradition has yielded results that are unusual, that are precious, and that are potentially things that could be lost, gives us a good foundation upon which to carefully reform, right? to chip away at the remaining faults and injustices, and, and to feel, feel the weight of those injustices, but to do that in a way that allows us to appreciate that which has come before and the goodness in the tradition that we've received. The second piece uh, by Levin, uh, written with uh, a man named Adam White, I think kind of hits upon this, this idea within the, an American political framework. And, and here he talks about what it means to have constitutional uh, gratitude or gratitude for constitutional uh, government. And at the beginning of, of the essay, he turns back to 1789, where a congressman had brought forth an idea of 
uh, us giving thanks. And um, there was a little bit of uh, controversy around whether or not we should give thanks, but the, the bill ended up uh, getting through uh, the Congress and, and being signed uh, by the president. Uh, hence, uh, we have uh, George Washington's Thanksgiving uh, proclamation that, that comes out of this issue. And, and it kind of brings up the point uh, of how can you express gratitude uh, in a world of human imperfection, right? Where uh, you're not always going to have you know, everything right. You're not always going to make the right call. You're not always going to do the right thing. But can you retain a sense of, of, of gratitude uh, even in the midst of, of um, a fallen world or a world uh, that uh, suffers from, from human imperfection? And uh, here Levin uh, and White say, of course you can, because what is established by something so excellent, right, as the federal constitution is, is an institutional means uh, to, to do better, to make things um, happen that, that might create, you know, uh, better outcomes uh, for mankind, um, uh, to have uh, a mechanism uh, that allows for a proper reverence uh, for law, uh, but uh, an ability uh, to build upon that reverence to create something leads to uh, a better outcome. And, um, you know, you don't often think about being grateful for a constitution, but I think that, you know, when, when, you, when you think about what it's provided to us uh, in terms of the way that we are able to enjoy Republican governance, um, a just administration, and so on, uh, it's really, it's, it's something that we ought to be uh, more, more thankful for and more, um, more wanting to kind of understand better uh, moving forward. Yeah, that's right. And we, again, this is one of those things that talk about blessings that you take for granted, but it's so easy to just take the political context in which you live and everything that surrounds that is just normal. The fact that we have a constitution that's been able to stand up to the test of time across those multiple generations is a testament to, to the great work of an imperfect founding generation, but a, a founding generation whose work can be built upon, who's, who's given us the kind of foundation upon which you can build a strong political community. So I want to end because this is where um, Levin and uh, Levin and White end the piece by by referencing uh, Frederick Douglass, uh, who uh, speaks at the Freedmen's Monument in, in Washington D.C.'s Lincoln Park, and 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 Douglass says the following: "The sentiment that brings us here today is one of the noblest that can stir and thrill the human heart. It is the sentiment of gratitude and appreciations, which often, in the presence of many who hear me." has filled yonder heights of Arlington with the eloquence of eulogy and the sublime enthusiasm of poetry and song, a sentiment which can never die while the Republic lives. You know, here, Douglas, uh, someone who uh, earlier uh, would have been somewhat skeptical as to whether or not um, the mission uh, of the American Republic was being fulfilled, uh, but, but noting that that reform can happen uh, and that gratitude, therefore, ought to be expressed to those who came before us. One of the weaknesses we've sometimes had in our political culture is an appreciation for rights without duties and an unwillingness to sort of take on the responsibilities of self-government. We, we want to, to claim the prize. We want to have the freedom to do as we please and to act in various ways and, and to live the life that we cherish for ourselves. But we don't always embrace the responsibility that comes with that, uh, the moral responsibilities to preserve the regime and care for our neighbor, to act well as citizens, to exercise the self-restraint that's necessary for self-government to really work. And I think it's a good time, uh, Thanksgiving season, to recapture some of that and to, to think about those duties and to think about the way that we can move forward with this attitude that is built upon a recognition that we've received things that we don't deserve. And we've received them ultimately from God through the hands of his providence that's worked through various individuals. Uh, these are blessings. These are, these are gracious gifts to us. And having been blessed, then there is the natural response of gratitude. I was speaking of earlier that ought to express itself, not just in, in acts of uh, expressions of thanks, but in practical actions that, that show a connection between what I recognize I've received and then what I can do 
to, to be a blessing to others as, as I respond to the mercy that I've, that I've been given. All right, so we're going to turn our focus to the grade book and have a little bit of fun. Right, you know, Thanksgiving is, is a great day of giving thanks and showing gratitude and time together and, and all the rest. But we know <laughs> in our consumer culture, they've managed to stake a claim to several of the following days. So we have Black Friday. And when Black Friday wasn't enough, the online retailers said, wait a second, everyone goes to stores. They're not supposed to do that. So we want a day for ourselves. So now they have Cyber Monday. And then the nonprofit said, well, okay, fine. You can have Monday, but we want Tuesday. So now we've got Giving Tuesday. We're going to think about different ways to spend your money and kind of connect them to Black Friday, Cyber Monday, Giving Tuesday for the person who has it all. So now we're all, after Thanksgiving, of course, starting thinking about Christmas. And you know, everyone's got that person who has it all, maybe older, who's kind of downsized and really want to have more stuff. You know, my, um, my grandparents years ago, they got a VCR um, you know, back in the mid 80s when that was the thing. And we lived near them for a couple of years. And so we came over, oh, you have a VCR, neat. So, you know, watch some movies. We came back a few months later, no VCR. And we said, well, what happened to the VCR? And I said, well, we watched all the movies we wanted to watch. So we gave it away. So that, you know, they were, <laughs> no, what we need VCR for, right? We, we watched those six movies. You know, we're done with that and we want to get that out of the house because we don't need things cluttering up. So if, if you have a person like that on your list, this grade book is for you. We're going to grade three, three possible gifts that you might give one associate with each of these days for that person who doesn't want more stuff around. Okay. So Black Friday, some kind of box of food, right? Perishable. Okay. So you got chocolates, you've got those nice Hickory Farms meat and cheese. Um, you know, you can do the nuts, right? But some kind of box of food, seasonal box of food, the point is it's gone, right? You eat it and it's gone. doesn't clutter up the house. What do you think, Dave? Depends on the food. I, I mean, I think Omaha steaks, that's, that's an A gift. <laughs> okay. You can never go wrong with <laughs> Omaha steaks. So any listeners are out there who are friends or family thinking of a holiday gift for the Corbin. So Omaha steaks would be a, a, a great one. Um, it's about a hundred, hundred fifty dollars. You know, it's you've had all this turkey, and now you've got to return to a different type of meat. So, yeah, I, I, I like the 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 steak purchase. You know, meat purchase overall. Yeah, a. Okay, an A for that one. Yeah, I, I mean, I would love that, but uh, I was thinking little, little more budget item. You know, so you've got the the meat and cheese or something like that. And I like that stuff too. I, I don't even mind those those big cans of popcorn. You know, like like caramelized popcorn. So yeah, that's like $3. If you're looking for a stocking stuffer at the end, you got to take up some space, but you want to be able to eat the present. So I'm going to give that a, an A minus. I like the, the edible Christmas food options. Second, for Cyber Monday, a digital subscription to a newspaper or magazine. No paper to clutter anything up. Nothing's showing up in your mail. Don't have to, you have to go to the mail. There it is. You, know, you got your iPad or your phone or you know, whatever, whatever you're using. And you open it up, there's your newspaper, there's your magazine. It's not that exciting to me. I, I kind of have my own little routine with how I, I get news. So okay. um, I, I don't know if I'd utilize it that well. So uh, well-meaning, but I go with a C, you know, they're pr probably not something I'm going to use that much. I'm not buying it for you. I'm buying it for that, that relative that doesn't want stuff. You, you, you've got plenty of stuff, right? I'm, but I don't want stuff either. I'm just, I'm thinking like, <laughs> okay. would I use it? Yeah, you know, I'm kind yeah. of in the category of the person you're thinking of. Okay. So. All right. Yeah, I'd probably, I'd give that a C. Okay. You got old young. All right. Yeah, exactly. Well, see the danger, I, I think about this, the danger is these subscriptions end and then it's awkward because either the person is really into it and now you've basically given them a gift that forces them to spend money. So they end up spending more than you maybe spend on them. Or, the, you know, you start getting these emails from the person that you bought the gift subscription from, hey, you need to renew, right? And so then you've got this like one year subscription and now you're in for 20 years. This happened to my dad. He, he bought me a subscription to Sports Weekly back when it was Baseball Weekly, like 25 years ago. And, you know, enjoy the magazine, read, keep up to date on all the sports. And so now every year he's got to renew it. Right? <laughs> he keeps it up. And it's been trouble with mailing labels and, you know, the fulfillment. I mean, it, it, he's had one headache after another, but he's, you know, he's committed to this gift. And I'm very, very grateful for it. But, you know, you think about, you made that choice 25 years ago. 
<laughs> and you're still paying the price. So I'm going to give that a C as well with, with the exception that if it's baseball weekly for me, keep it up, dad. I love it. Thank you very much. I appreciate all the effort you've, you've gone through over the years to, to keep that subscription alive. And then lastly, for Giving Tuesday. So giving money or something through a nonprofit on the giver's behalf, right? You know, you got all these catalogs that come out where, you know, you can buy a goat for a village in Africa. And, you know, you do that in the name of the person that you're giving for. I'm all for that. I'm going to give that one an A as well. I, I think that, uh, yeah, I, I think Giving Tuesday of the three is, is uh, the greatest innovation uh, more recently. And I like the idea, uh, and we've been going to do this a lot, you know, with grandparents of, of our kids, you know, give something, you know, to, to a nonprofit close to you, a winter jacket or whatever that may be. Um, we don't need a winter jacket in California or Texas or, you know, things that you're used to buying. So uh, a goat, uh, that, that I'm sure that, that means a, a lot. No, yeah. Giving Tuesday, let's, uh, as, as college professors who work for nonprofits, we are all for Giving Tuesday. Uh, don't forget yes. your favorite nonprofits, your favorite college alumni of Providence College, the King's College. Don't forget about your old alma mater when right. Giving Tuesday comes around. All right, we always close the show out with the Tocqueville's crystal ball. It's been another ugly stretch for us in the realm of sports picks. Last time, I got two right out of five, so I'm cumulatively 24 and 21. Dave, you are one for five, and so you're now 15 and 30. Not pretty. There are some um, sports betting sites right now that are just kind of picking up on the, the picks that I make and then doing the opposite and there a whole bunch of people making money a real reason for people to be uh, grateful to me for my poor showing on this part of the show but um i, I brought in a couple of ringers um uh, for this week's picks uh, they're they're going to pick for me you can't do much worse than uh, what i've done picking picking everything wrong or at least picking wrong two-thirds of the time so i've got here jack corbin jack Say hello. Say hello. Hello. To, say hello to the country. Hello. Hello, all of the whole entire world, if you're watching. All right. So Very likely. Matt is going to give you some choices. Go ahead, Matt. What are his choices for the picks? So our first game is Notre Dame or North Carolina. Notre Dame is the number two team in the country. North Carolina is number 25. And Notre Dame is favored by four and a half points. Notre Dame or North Carolina? Jessica? North Carolina. Wow. North Carolina. Okay. All right. I, I have a feeling that your dad would have gone the other way, so I think you're off to a good start. I'm going to take Notre Dame, so we'll see. It'll be me or you, Jack. One, only one of us can be right. Our number two pick this week is Penn State. 0-5 Penn State. Sad, sad, sad. At Michigan, who is and 2-3. Michigan is a two and a half point favorite. So is it Penn State or Michigan, Jack? Michigan. Michigan. Okay. Well, there I agree with you. I agree with you. Sad to say, as a as a longtime Penn State fan, not happy about the season, but I don't think it's going to get better beginning on this Saturday. And now we've got a new guest picker, right? Hello, Eliza. America. Hi. All right, Eliza, are you ready? So yes. each week we do an NFC East matchup of the week. These are really, really bad teams. And so we have the New York Giants, who have won three mm -hmm. games out yeah. of ten, and okay. the Cincinnati Bengals, who have won only two games. But the Bengals are at home, and the Bengals just lost their quarterback. So they've got a backup quarterback. So Giants are favored by six points. Do you think it'll be the Giants or the Bengals? Bengals. The Bengals. All right. The Bengals at home cover. I actually think that's going to be the case too. I don't know why. I think this is a dangerous call, but I've, I've committed myself to rooting for the team that's playing the NFC East. I want to have the worst possible record for the Giants and the rest of their division mates this year. So go Bengals. All right. We agree on that one. Our fourth pick this week. Chicago Bears and Green Bay Packers, classic matchup. One of the great rivalries in the NFL. The Packers are a nine-point favorite. So if you pick the Packers, they have to win by at least nine for you to win. 
So what do you say, Bears or Packers, Eliza? It's a tough choice, but I'm going to go with the Bears. With the Bears, okay. All right, well, that's probably comforting to my dad. My dad always fears it when the Corbins are on his side. So I'm going to pick the the Packers. The Bears, yeah. Good 80s Silent Live reference. Very nice. So we're gonna go. I'm gonna go with the Packers. So we'll we'll see who's right on that one. Now the last pick. This is a tricky one. There's a golf match, a golf match that only involves one professional golfer. So we've got Phil Mickelson, who's a famous mm-hmm. professional golfer, and Charles Barkley, who's a famously bad golfer, but a great <laughs> basketball player. Back in the day, he was known as the round mound of rebound. And that was because he was about as wide as he was tall. And these days he's wider still. And so that's not really the physique for a golfer typically. So Phil Mickelson and Charles Barkley are playing against Peyton Manning, a great football player, and Steph Curry, a great basketball player. But Steph Curry is really, really good at golf and Peyton Manning is pretty good too. Okay, so that's the match. Now, what you have to do is you have to tell me, I've got these two pairs. Are you going to say Curry and Manning or Mickelson and Barkley? Uh, The Manning one. The Manning one. All right, Peyton Manning, Peyton Manning and Steph Curry. Yeah, I think it's going to be Mickelson and Barkley. I don't know why. I think it's because my old Philadelphia roots, remembering Barkley as a great basketball player and hoping for the best here. I think they're going to be the funniest group, at least. I'm counting on that. Phil Mickelson's pretty funny. Barkley's pretty funny. So it'll be a good time. Thanks very much, Eliza. Thank you, Jack. I'm sure you did better than your dad. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving to you, too. That's going to do it for this week's show. Thanks very much, as always, for listening. And we look forward to being back with you next week. In the meantime, please remember to subscribe and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. Thanks, and we'll talk to you next week. 